Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hello, everybody. This is Daniel Karapkin speaking to you from uh, Thornhill, Ontario, for webyeshiva.org. We are studying Morena Vuchim. Uh, we had a break last week, and now we're resuming from where we were two weeks ago. Um, uh, last, the last four sessions, we were studying chapter 73 of the first section of Morena Vuchim, and today we are embarking on chapter 74. I hope to be able to encapsulate all of chapter 74 in one half hour um, um, segment that we'll do uh, today. Um, but I just want to map out very briefly what we're going to be discussing over the next three lessons. And that is that for chap the last three chapters of the first section of Moren Nebuchim, 74, 75, and 76, will set out where the Rambam is going to set out now to present to us uh, what his uh, philosophical opponents, the Mutakalimun, believe that they can demonstrate based on the premises that they had laid down, that the, the 12 premises that they had laid down in the previous chapter. And just to sort of flesh out that review, the Rambam had told us previously that um, that the Mutakalimun are a group of philosophers, religious philosophers, theologians, who um, have a certain view of the universe that is uh, uh, non-Aristotelian. They take a decidedly different view of science of the time, of how to view the universe and its very makeup. And as a result, they come to certain um, proofs to prove that the universe was created. And really, there were four things that the Rambam said that the Mutakalimun, these religious philosophers, undertake in order to be able to demonstrate the truths that they wish to present. The four uh, points, the four essential foundational issues that the Mutakalimun set out to prove is that A, that God exists, B, that this God who exists is unitary in nature, completely one, Number three, that God is completely uh, non-corporeal. And number four, that the world was created by this creator, by this God who is a creator. And in the, the following three chapters, the Rambam in chapter 74 is going to present to us the proofs of the Mutakalimun that they provide that the world was created by a creator. And he's going to provide seven proofs for that. Chapter 75 will set out to prove that this God who is the creator of creation is indeed unitary. And in, in chapter 76, he will present the proofs that the Mutakalimun present that this God is completely incorporeal, uh, non-physical in nature. And uh, 
so I just want to put up the uh, the handout that we have uh, that will review for us the um, the twelve premises of the Muta Kalimun. Um, and you see that some of them are bolded because they're going to play much more prominently in the proofs that uh, that we wish to to uh, to present today on behalf of the Mutakalimun. We are uh, in chapter seventy four, which is page two hundred fifteen in the Pines edition. So why don't we get started just using our handout to demonstrate what the position of the Mutakalimun are? Now, this is an interesting exercise because the Rambam, as we've pointed out many times before, is an Aristotelian philosopher. That means that he subscribes wholeheartedly to the system whereby Aristotle explained how the universe exists, what it is made up of, and how we're supposed to view all of reality. And it is through that Aristotelian lens that the Rambam says we're supposed to appreciate the Ribbono Shalom, the Almighty, and develop a, re, an, a relationship through our intellects of developing our intellects using an Aristotelian depiction of reality and understand God that way and appreciate God. Right? The Rambam feels that this is the most accurate way uh, through which we can develop a, a, a relationship with God intellectually in our minds. And therefore, he feels it necessary to dispel any competing system, any competing intellectual system of that depicts scientific reality in any way that is different, even if the objective of that um, competing system is the very same objective. But in, if at the end of the day, it's a mistaken depiction of reality, I need to show you where it's mistaken so that if indeed you wish to develop that devekut, that connection with God, you don't go down the wrong path because that erroneous path will not connect you to God because it is depicting reality incorrectly. And so therefore, this is not a question of good versus evil, uh, but rather correct versus incorrect. The Mutakalimun's objectives and their intentions are noble. They too are trying to get to the truth and trying to gain access to God and prove the same things that I wish to prove, but they're going about it incorrectly. They're making fundamental errors in their understanding of reality and of science and of nature. And therefore, I'm going to present to you what they set out to prove, what their proofs are, and I will show you where they are making a mistake. And that will end section one of the Morin of Uchim. And then with the beginning of section two, the Rambam will set out to demonstrate what, based on Aristotelian science, the correct ways for us to gain an understanding of the universe and to prove all of the things that the Mutakalimun wish to prove, I will prove them as well, but using a completely different system, an Aristotelian system, instead of this atomic system that we've discussed over the last several weeks. So the Rambam in chapter 74 presents seven proofs, and I put the word proofs in quotes because the Rambam doesn't subscribe to them. He doesn't feel that they are legitimate proofs, but it's the proofs that the Mutakalimun present. And in, the, in sort of the preamble in this chapter, the Rambam says, basically what I'm presenting to you in this uh, chapter is in a nutshell, everything that the Mutakalimun have to say to prove that the world was created at some point, and therefore it has a sentient and willful creator. 
okay, because otherwise it could not have been created at some point in time unless there was a sentience that caused it to be created. And even though there, are, there is much more voluminous material, there's a lot of literature that the Mutakalimun have churned out over the course of centuries to prove this point, but I have whittled it down to its basic elements and everything else that you find in their literature is flowery prose and is elaboration and repetition, but this is really what it boils down to. So these are the seven proofs. Proof number one, and this is a proof of extrapolation. You, ex you can extrapolate from each individual organism that we can observe that in, in the span of our lifetimes, that organisms evolve from simple to complex. Just take a look at any living creature. It starts off as a single-celled um, organism, and then it develops into an embryo, and that embryo develops into a fetus, and the fetus develops into an infant, and that infant develops into a full-grown human or animal creature, living creature. Now, if that is what we observe going on all around us, then logic dictates that we can extrapolate from the specific to the general. And we can therefore say that if individual organisms evolve from the most simple structure to much more complex organisms, then the universe as a whole, all of reality, had to go through that evolu evolutionary process as well. And therefore, at some point, there was the simplest form type of creation, really what scientists who subscribe to the Big Bang call the cosmic egg, right? In other words, that single-celled, uh, very, very dense, super dense, um, uh, original, uh, uh, existent um, organism that forms the egg for the entire universe. There's this big bang and everything comes into existence and that's what creation is. So this is a proof for creation at some point from something very, very simple, which develops and evolves into something very complex over time. And that's the proof for, for creation. The Rambam doesn't really reserve a tremendous amount of criticism for this proof, um, but he basically says that this is a proof through extrapolation from the individual to the general, or it's from the specific to the, to the general. Proof number two, it is impossible for an infinite chain of cause, causation of finite organisms to exist. And here, the Rambam is relying on the 11th premise of the Mutakalimun. He basically says, if you look back to what the Mutakalimun said, nothing can exist infinitely, infinity, even a sequence, an in infinite sequence of sequential items is impossible according to the Mutakalimun. He says, based on that premise, which I don't agree with, says the Rambam, because if, as we've discussed in previous weeks, according to Aristotle, it is possible for, for there to be a sequence that goes on ad infinitum, has no beginning and has no end, which we'll talk a little bit about uh, more shortly. But it, the, the, the argument that the Mutakalimun make is that you cannot have an infinite chain of causality. And therefore, if there is a human being that exists today, and he says, we'll call him Zayid, you know, call him any name. It's the, the name Zayid is an Arabic name like Tom, Dick, or Harry, okay, or Ruvain or Shimon in Hebrew. He has to have a father. His father was Umar. Umar had to have a father. And Umar's father may have been named Khalid all of these very simple Arabic names. And you go back 
And Khalid has to have a father too. And you go back, you cannot go to, there cannot be an infinite number of antecedents to Zayed who was here today. There must have been a starting point. And therefore, it's a very simple logical argument that since it's impossible to have an infinite chain of sequence, of causality, there must have been at some point a first cause. And that first cause is what we call God, who brought into being the very first human being or the very first creation. And that's proof for creation. It's a very, very simple proof. Um, and um, this here too, that um, the Rambam basically reserves his criticism by basically saying that this is based on a premise that as I've already demonstrated, I do not subscribe to because I'm an Aristotelian. Proof number three, atoms are static uniform substances. The fact that some aggregate and some separate proves that there is a creator who structured them as such at some point in time. Now what this, this base is basically the taking the very first premise of the Mutakalimun that this universe, the stuff that makes up this universe is what we call atoms, very, very tiny uh, um, objects of matter that aggregate or connect with each other in order to form mountains, oceans, sweaters, and anything else in the physical world that you can imagine. And there's something mysterious about these atoms because as the Mutakalimun had, had expressed in their premises, the, the atoms of this universe are steady state, they are uh, uniform, there are not different kinds of atoms. There are only accidents or attributes that are added onto these atoms that make some substances one way and some substances another way. Another unique feature of these atoms is that for some mysterious reason, some atoms stick to each other to make large substances like a mountain or, um, or an animal. Right, and others, other atoms separate from each other so that we have disparate items that exist that are not connected to each other. There is nothing inherent in the atoms which would cause some atoms to aggregate or stick together and some atoms separate from each other. We must therefore conclude, goes the argument of this third proof, that there is some sentient force that put into motion why some atoms aggregate and some atoms separate. This leads us to believe in a creator who is in control of this process, and therefore that leads to the proof to, to creation. And as, as you note, some of these arguments prove a creator and some prove creation, but really they boil down to the same proofs. In other words, the Mutakalimun are trying to demonstrate that at some point in time, the world came into existence out of nothing. And that, you know, whether you start at that point, based on logic, let's say you cannot have an infinite uh, uh, series of causes, or based on the fact that there must be some sentience that brings things into being in the way that they are today without any explanation other than it must be through a force of will of some sentience that proves that there's a creator. But that also indicates that at some point point, it came into being in the way that we find it today. So the bottom line is, is that this third proof indicates that there is a sentient and willful creator. Uh, so that proves creation as well. Now, of course, if we subject this to modern science, we certainly have, an, have a very cogent explanation 
as to why some atoms cling to another to form molecules and other atoms repel each other. We know, of course, about positive and negative charges, neutrons, electrons, protons, and all of the other subatomic particles that cause uh, atoms and molecules to have certain properties. But that was not uh, something that the Mutakalimun subscribed to. Their atomic theory was very different from the atomic theory that we associate with today. Uh, but based on their understanding of atoms, that they are uh, steady state, they are unchanging, there, there is nothing unique about one atom versus another atom, they're all exactly the same. This must require some sentient being to decide how atoms structure themselves, and that in itself points to a creator. Proof number four. If accidents in atoms are constantly recreated, so are the atoms themselves. Now, this goes back to the sixth premise of the Mutakalimun, that each accident exists only for an instant. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time reviewing that because we discussed it extensively in our discussions in chapter 73. But essentially, the Mutakalimun believe that everything is constantly being recreated. When we say, God constantly renews creation, the Mutakalimun take that literally to mean that the world is constantly being created and recreated. And if that's the case, then everything, even the atoms themselves, are constantly being recreated. And so, you, since you cannot have an infinite succession of finite items, as we explained in premise number 11 before, there must have been a first atom or set of atoms, ergo creation. And the Rambam here reserves some criticism. He, he, he goes to um, three, um, he goes through a critique of this particular proof and basically argues that this proof is premised on three things that I don't subscribe to because I'm an Aristotelian. The first thing that it's premised on is that it's impossible for there to be an infinite succession of finite items coming into being, which is premise number 11, which we discussed before when we talked about proof number two. Number, the second premise is that all accidents, all, all atoms in their accidents are created and recreated constantly. And I don't subscribe to that. I believe in a fluid reality where one moment leads into the other and not, and not something that is digital and constantly being recreated. And finally, existence is comprised of atoms and accidents according to the Mutakalimun, whereas I as an Aristotelian believe that the world has created a form and matter. And form and matter are the terminologies that Aristotle used to describe creation, which we're not gonna go into now, because when we do get into section two, the Rambam will explain this more extensively. But suffice it for our purposes now that the Rambam basically says that the Mutakalimun used this proof to express that there must have been a creation if everything is constantly being recreated. So there must have been a first creation of atoms and their accidents and their attributes. Um, it, because, and it just follows, since everything is constantly in a state of being created and then being recreated in the very next instant, there must have been a first creation that started this whole process of constant recreation. And the Rambam says, I don't subscribe to that. I don't believe that the universe is comprised of, of an atomic structure, both spatially and chronologically. I believe that there is a, that there is, this is an analog flowing universe where what existed a moment ago is the same reality that exists right now. 
and that there is not this dramatic change from one second or one moment to the next. And I believe also in form and matter, which is a different way of describing all of the things that make up reality. And based on that, I cannot subscribe at all to this kind of proof. This proof doesn't resonate with me at all. The next proof, proof number five, is what all of the works call particularization. And what that word simply means, and that's the word that Pines uses and some of the other texts use as well, it's based on the Arabic term, and it basically means as follows. Since any existence could have been different from what it currently is, the fact that it is one way and not the other is proof of a sentient and willful creator. And this uses premise number 10. Premise number 10 was very important when we discussed chapter 73, where the Rambam basically said that according to the Mutakalimun, anything that I can imagine in my imagination faculty, in my mind, when I can, if I can conjure an image of something that, that doesn't exist, but I can imagine it existing, then it is possible. And it is possible that such a thing will exist, even though we've never found it, and it does not exist in our, in our frame of reality right now. But if I can imagine it, then its existence is possible. And this gives rise to the possibility of tremendously miraculous phenomena being part of the purview of reality for the Mutakalimun. And using that kind of, uh, of mindset, the argument is, since any existence could be different from what it currently is, and this is all, this is modern philosophers have pondered this as well. Why is reality the way it is? In other words, if I have uh, one reality and it could just have easily been a different reality, doesn't that prove that there is some kind of sentience uh, causing it to be this way and not that way? And since it is possible to imagine reality being totally different from what it currently is, doesn't that mean that it, that other possibility is real? even though it may be physically, using the laws of physics, it's impossible, but if I can imagine it, then it is possible. And therefore, the fact that it's this way and not the other way that I'm thinking about is proof that there must be a God. There must be a sentient being who chose option A over option B. The reason why the Rambam finds this to be unsatisfying is because he rejected premise number 10. He said that we've, that we've been able to demonstrate that there are many things that a person can conjure with their imagination, which are not real and are not um, are not actually possible. And so one should not use their imagination faculty as a determinant of that which can potentially exist. Just because you can think about it doesn't mean that it's physically possible for such a thing to exist. So just because I can imagine another type of reality doesn't indicate that there is a sentience who created it this way because he could have easily created it another way. And the example that the Rambam uses is why is a certain landmass above water and not below water? The fact that there was a decision, an active decision to make a certain landmass to be above water instead of below sea level indicates a sentient creator who chose to make this landmass above water and not below water. Or another example would be is if I take a look at a copper pitcher and I say to myself, hmm, this copper pitcher could just have easily been made into a copper lamp. Why is it a pitcher and not a lamp? Does that not indicate that there was a sentient being 
who chose to make the copper into a, into a pitcher instead of a lamp. And the same thing is true about anything that exists in creation. If it's this way and not the other way, that indicates that there's a creator. And again, the Rambam is not enamored by this, although he does say that it is the most excellent of all of these proofs. And he's going, he says, what, I, what he says is, uh, I just want to read to you what he says on page 219. Um, Some who believe in the eternity of the world do not contradict us with regard to particularization, as we shall make clear. When we get into the second section of Moreh Nebuchim, the Rambam will say that there is something satisfying about this, even if you believe in an internal existence like Aristotle does. To sum up, this is to my mind a most excellent method. I have with regard to it an opinion, which you shall hear when we get to chapter 19 in section number two. So probably out of all of the proofs, this proof of particularization is most appealing to the Rambam. It'll take a modified form of it later on in the Morenavuchim. Proof number six is the Rambam is not as enamored by it. It's a spe what we would call a special case of particularization. You know, and what, what basically the argument goes is, since any existence could just as easily have not existed, the fact that it exists is proof of a sentient and willful creator. And the Rambam is most dissatisfied with this proof. His dissatisfaction with this proof is, is that just because something exists does not automatically mean that there is a creator who brought it into existence based on this argument. And this argument is circular, he says, in that it assumes that any existent could have just as easily not existed. But what if the existent in question has eternally existed? It could not have just as easily not existed because perhaps its existence is necessary, right? In other words, if something has existed for all of eternity, perhaps its existence is necessary. So you can't say it could have just as easily not existed unless you subscribe to premise number 10, which allows for impossible things that are imaginable to exist. So the Rambam basically says, I don't, I'm not as enamored by this proof as I was by proof number five of particularization, because it doesn't imagine, it doesn't sort of force us to imagine something not existing, because maybe the things that exist today must exist because they've eternally existed like the things on our planet. So the Rambam is not as, as enamored by this sixth proof, the special case of particularization, so we're going to move on. The seventh proof that the Rambam gives is that from the Mutakalimun is that it is impossible for an infinite number of souls to exist concurrently. And this is the argument that the Mutakalimun give. If the world has existed eternally, that means that human beings have existed on this planet for an infinite amount of time. If we believe in the eternity of the soul, this would mean that there are an infinite number of souls actually existing concurrently, because as people a million years ago died, then their souls exist eternally in some repository of souls. And the people who existed two million years ago also are part of that same repository. If you go back to infinity, that means that there's an infinite number of souls that are, that are immortal, eternal souls that are currently existing. And even Aristotle would have to concede, as the Rambam discussed before, that having a concurrent series of an in that is infinite is impossible. The only thing that the Rambam had argued with as far as infinity goes is can you have an infinite sequence 
of things that are not existing concurrently, but are in a chain of existence. But the Rambam did concede that, that according to Aristotle, having an infinite number of finite objects that exist concurrently is also impossible. So how can you have an infinite number of immortal souls coexisting concurrently? Doesn't that prove that human beings have not existed eternally as Aristotle has argued? There must have been a point of creation where the first human being and the first immortal soul came into being. The Rambam rejects this because the Rambam basically once again says that this argument is based on a premise. And the premise is that souls are completely individuated. You don't understand, he says, the nature of the soul. The nature of the soul is a very, very esoteric concept. So for you to relate laws of physics and apply them to uh, immortal souls is inappropriate. Just because I concede that you cannot have an infinite number of finite and discrete physical objects um, uh, concurrently existing ad infinitum does not mean that you cannot have an infinite number of metaphysical souls that exist concurrently. And here's where the Rambam is a bit vague in his language, and it's very difficult to understand what he really means. Because at one point, he does suggest in this seventh proof on page 221, he says, what remains of Zayed is neither the cause nor the effect of what remains of Umar. You can have two people who die and their souls are what remains of them. Their souls are not in any way related to each other, but at the same time, the Rambam seems to be saying that, um, and I'm just, just getting the, the, the place over here. He says, now you know that regarding the things separate from matter, I mean, those that are neither bodies nor forces in bodies, but intellects, there can be no thought of multiplicity of any mode whatsoever, except that some of them are the cause of the existence of others, and that thus there is a difference among them, since one is the cause and the other is the effect. However, what remains of Zayed is neither the cause nor the effect of what remains of Umar. And it's not clear, there are many people who argue that here the Rambam, and we've discussed this in previous chapters, does the Rambam believe that what remains of a person after he dies, he or she dies, becomes um, part of a collective of souls that no longer are individuated? That is there any um, uniqueness to a, an individual soul after they die? Or do, or do all souls return to a repository of souls and unify in some way? So that the question of infinity uh, becomes moot if you believe that the souls are no longer individual, discrete, separate items. If they're no longer discrete separate items, then to talk about an infinite uh, number of souls is a moot issue because they all become consolidated into one. And some have understood that the Rambam believes that when a person dies, there is no individuation of the soul. But I'm not convinced of that based on the vagueness of this language. And I would have to argue that perhaps the Rambam still does believe in some on some level of the individuation of the soul. This is a very uh, um, serious discussion. It's, it has the stakes of this discussion are very high, but we're becoming now very very esoteric. And I don't want to I don't want to get into areas which are very very difficult to plumb their depths. We'll just conclude with the concluding words of the Rambam on the bottom of page two twenty two. 
The foregoing are the principal methods of the Mutakalimun in establishing the coming into being of the world in time. Now when, by means of these proofs, it was established to their mind that the world was produced in time, it followed of necessity that it has an artificer, a, a, a being that brings it into being, who has produced it in time with a purpose and by the use of will and freedom of choice. So this is a sentient being, this is a willful being who has actively chosen to bring creation into existence. Thereupon they made clear that he is one by means of methods that we shall explain to you in the next chapter. So just to introduce chapter 75, which we'll God willing see next week, um, chapter 75 will discuss the unity, the unitary nature of this creator that the Mutakalimun have just set out to prove using their seven proofs. And that's something that we'll see next time. The only other thing that you may just find of interest is Aristotle's belief in an infinite sequence of the eternal existence of the universe. And that goes to something that the Rambam had expanded upon in his disputation with proof number four. Um, and I just include that just as, a, as an addendum. The, the, the Rambam makes mention of the fact that Aristotle believes that while, it's, while you can't have an infinite sequence of events concur, concurrently occurring, when you deal with motion that starts at point A and ends at point B, point A and point B must be finite. But what if you have something that is alive? The, the Aristotle connects the state of living with the state of motion. And what if that motion is circular instead of linear? Then Aristotle believes that you can have an infinite sequence of circular motion because everything in nature is constantly feeding into itself and constantly in motion on a circular basis, not on a linear basis. And just from one of the websites that I think presents this nicely, he says, the world of nature as Plato taught is characterized by motion. According to the doctrines presented by Aristotle in the physics, moreover, the natural world is also a world of self-moving things. Since forms are imminent in the world, the end or telos of everything can be discovered through reflection on sensible objects and their development. Aristotelian nature is dynamic and intelligible, but not, however, evolutionary in the modern sense, since there is no temporal movement towards any endpoint nor complexification of living beings in time that changes their essential or formal aspects. Aristotle conceived of time as cyclical and eternal and of natural species as fixed. Circular movement therefore defines both life and living nature for Aristotle. Nature always exists, always existed, and is an uncreated living thing. This assumption will have consequences for the Aristotelian understanding of natural laws forces, matter, and space. This is the Aristotelian model that the Rambam is using to argue with the Mutakalimun in their, in their efforts to try and prove that the world was at some point created based on their rejection of an infinite sequence. The Rambam says, if you believe in Aristotelian science, nature is cyclical and therefore is not evolutionary and therefore does not require a point A, a finite point A and a finite point B. That's really the point that he was getting to in using the premise of premise number 11. We've gotten really uh, a little bit 
um, abstract today, and I apologize if it was difficult to follow. This may be um, a presentation or discussion of chapter 74, may require a second listen to in order to be able to, uh, to appreciate, appreciate it further. But with this, we're going to stop and we'll uh, continue with chapter 75 to uh, uh, present the Mutakalimun's proofs of God's unitary nature um, next time. Take care now.